And we're going to start this morning um, in Genesis chapter 12. So you can start making your way there. And um, we're going to be moving a lot through some different scriptures. This is not going to be your typical message this morning. It's going to be a little bit more reflective. It's going to be a little bit more devotional. But I pray it's going to be helpful in many ways. Um, maybe just as a point of clarification, I don't want anybody to be confused or concerned. Um, um, our conference coming up with Don Whitney, it's uh, not all day Saturday. So if you're thinking, man, I, I got to readjust my babysitting. I only got the morning. It's just for the morning, okay? We're not, it's not all day. It's just Friday evening and, and Saturday morning. Just didn't want any of you to um, be deterred either from signing up for that. As you're turning in your Bible, I, I, the, the reason this message is going to be a little bit different this morning is because honestly, um, uh, I, uh, I've had a hard time really thinking about what to preach this morning. I, I just came back from Israel. Some of you know I was, I was away for nine days in Israel. I got back late Wednesday night, and I knew I would be coming back and preaching on something. I was praying the whole time I was there that God would really impress something upon my heart, you know, one place, one text. And I can just tell you that throughout the time, as it kind of came to a close, I found myself more and more concerned because God was pressing so many things on my heart, and I didn't know how to just pick one, and so I picked a bunch of them. Um, you know, going to Israel has been something I've wanted to do for some time now. I've really longed to travel the roads and walk the hills of this ancient land. Um, I've known and I believe that it would be incredibly beneficial in terms of my um, personal education, but also for ministry purposes, for my preaching ministry, for my pastoral ministry. I'd heard people talk about going to Israel in the past and the life-changing experience that it was. And to be honest with you, I was a little bit skeptical when people said things like that. I mean, after all, it is just a, a place on a map. It's just a geographical location. How significant or how meaningful can it really be? Well, I still believe, listen, I, I believe this all my heart, you don't have to walk where Jesus walked to walk with Jesus, amen? That's a good thing. But it is pretty awesome to walk where Jesus walked. Walking where Jesus walked, um, to be perfectly honest with you and perfectly transparent, it's made me want to walk with Jesus more. It's hard really to put words to it, to the experience It's not just about, while, while the most important thing is walking where Jesus walked, it's, it's not just where Jesus walked. In fact, if you just consider this for a minute, everything we read in our Bibles is rooted and grounded essentially in that location, that geographical place. From cover to cover, from beginning by the way till end, everything really throughout history is centered around that plot of land. It's about walking where Jesus walked, yes, but it's about walking where the patriarchs walked, the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's about walking where the prophets walked, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's about walking where the kings of Israel walked, David and Solomon. It's about being where the people of God were for thousands and thousands of years. And the biblical history and geography 
flood your mind while you're there. It's, it's a fascinating experience. Things just begin to leap off the pages of scripture. They, they come to life in a fresh and vibrant way. Some people say, you know, reading the Bible before going to Israel is like reading the Bible in black and white. And then when you come back, it's like reading the Bible in technicolor. More than anything, being there reminded me of some really powerful biblical realities. The first of which, and really the most important of which, is what I want to talk about this morning, and that's this. I was reminded time and time again, from the beginning of the trip to the end of the trip, and as the Lord has continued to stir my heart as I think about and, and try to process everything that I've seen and taken in, the one thing that God has stuck within my heart is that our God is a truly awesome God. There is no God like our God. And I want to remind you of that this morning by moving around the Bible and showing you some things that some of you are going to be very familiar with, but I trust the Lord will use them to really ignite your heart with a deeper longing for God, with a deeper desire to worship Him and to praise Him, with a deeper sense of gratitude for who our God is and what He has done and how He has been working throughout all of human history even to this very day. I want to show us this morning that this is our God. This is our God. And the first thing I want you to see is this, that our God is faithful. Trust Him. Being in Israel and seeing the land and seeing all that's going on there reminded me so vividly of how faithful God is. You see, it brought me all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 12. I couldn't help being in the land and thinking of how Israel as a nation actually came into existence. At one point, it was not a nation, and then God sovereignly declared that he was going to bring about this nation. God creates the world and he creates us to serve and enjoy him and the world he made. But we know the biblical story. Humanity turned away from God, from serving him. They sinned and they marred themselves and all of creation. Nevertheless, God promised to not abandon his people, though it was his right, though that's what we deserved. But instead, he determined in his sovereign kindness and grace to rescue them, to rescue us. Despite the guilt and condemnation that humanity was under, despite their inadvertently corrupt hearts and character, but to do this, first God had to call out one family in the world to know him and to serve him, and we read the account of this happening in Genesis chapter 12. This is a real historical accounting of how God birthed the nation of Israel. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 12, down to verse 8. It's, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, (coughs) excuse me, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. 
And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This is the original account of how Israel came into being. God calls this man from Abram out of his former land, the former place of his residence, and out of his former life. And don't miss the significance of this. Abraham is called out of the land of Haran, and what you need to know about Abraham is he was not a guy who was pursuing God. He was a man who was a pagan idolater himself. There are no Jewish people at this point in history. Abraham becomes the father of the nation of Israel. But don't miss the significance of this. God reaches down into his messed up, corrupt and sinful creation and he sovereignly chooses this man named Abraham. He pulls him out of his sinful life and by his grace he says to him, I am going to build for myself a new people who will live in a new land that it will be devoted to me. You know, as I thought about this, I was reminded that the people of God are always a result of the faithfulness of God. The people of God have always been the result of the faithfulness of God. Do you realize that the reason you are part of the people of God is not because of your own doing or your own choosing, it's because of the sovereign faithfulness and kindness of God. God calls Abraham out of his life of sin in the same way God has called us out of a life of sin. He establishes a people unto himself in his kindness and in his faithfulness. And to demonstrate how faithful God is, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Flip in your Bible just a couple of pages probably, or maybe just one, to Genesis 15. God makes a deep and intimate promise to Abraham, a binding promise. He says to him in verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision God said this, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And here's what the New Testament writers pick up on. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? The rest of the chapter goes on to demonstrate that that, on that day, God made a covenant with him. In fact, verse 18 says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and all those other ites.
God tells Abraham with no uncertainty that this will be your dwelling place. This land with these borders will be given over to you. I love what the New Testament writers pick up on here when it comes to Abraham and his relationship with God. You see, what God was trying to teach Abraham time and time again is that God is a faithful God. He is a faithful, promise-making and promise-keeping God. What God says, he will always do. And Abraham, to his credit, the word of God says he believed God. He trusted God. He trusted the faithfulness of God. He believed the promise that God had made. And the word of God tells us that because he did, it was counted to him as righteousness. It's a powerful reminder of how every single human being can come into a right relationship with God. It is not based on your own cleverness, your own intuition, your own working. It is based upon God's kindness and his faithfulness. We simply trust who God says he is. You know, you are made right with God by trusting the faithfulness of God. Specifically, this side of the cross, the faithfulness of God to bring an heir from the line of Abraham, his son, Jesus Christ. Abraham's held, upheld as a model for us to imitate throughout the word of God, but the story of Abraham is really a story about the faithful promise of God. To prove his faithfulness, God takes Abraham and he tests Abraham's trust in him. It's in chapter 15 that Abraham is actually, his name is changed to Abraham. And we see in chapter 22, flip forward with me. That God is intent of reminding Abraham time and time again of how faithful he is encouraging his servant to continue to trust in him completely. In Genesis chapter 22, you're probably familiar with the account. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Remember, God was faithful to his promise to give him an heir. He did in his son, Isaac. Take your son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering as one of, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This was the common practice in pagan religions. To offer your firstborn child was happening all throughout pagan religions. And you can see, you know, some of us wonder, like, how could Abraham even believe that this was right and okay? This was normal in this culture, in these ancient pagan religions. It is stunning, none the least, that God asks him to do this. So Abraham, it says, though, rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. When we were driving towards Israel, I can tell you that the first thing that popped into my mind, Israel is up high on a mountain. Everything, uh, biblically speaking, related to, to, to Jerusalem in particular, is up. Jerusalem is always up. It's fascinating being down low and then looking up. You can see the top of the mountain, that temple mount. And all I could think of is what it must have been like for Abraham to start at the bottom of that mountain, to look up to the top, to take his son, and to trust that God was going to be faithful, to believe that God was right in what he was doing. 
To know that God said that he was gonna make out of him and through his heir a mighty nation as plentiful as the sand of the sea. To believe that God said he was gonna give his people a land. To think of him marching up that hill. And Abraham, verse five, said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, in his hand, the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. Just imagine this scene. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him out on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God reiterates the covenant that he makes with him. Look at verse 18. He says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's hard to process what must have taken place, the turmoil in the father's heart. For Abraham to leave the land and the family he knew and loved, to trust that God would be faithful to keep his promises even when he could not see, to take his son marching up on the mountain as Isaac unknowingly asked where the lamb for the sacrifice was. Yet I was reminded again that God is faithful to keep his promises. You know, when the the writer of Hebrews recalls Abraham in the the great chapter 11, that hall of fame of faith. You want to know what he says about this very event? Think about the faith of Abraham. Think about the trust that Abraham had in this moment. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, listen to this, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed so firmly in the promises of God. He believed so firmly that God was faithful that he knew even if he followed through and obeyed God and killed his only son, that God would fulfill the promise he made to him. God would raise up his dead son, bring him back to life just because our God is so faithful. That is a staggering, staggering degree of faith and trust. And yet as you think about that, I want to 
encourage you with this, that is exactly the kind of trust that we are called to exhibit in our God because we believe and we trust and we follow the same God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, amen? Our God never changes. He is faithful through and through. Our faith is built upon knowing and trusting God. How often does God test our faith in him? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How often does God want to test how much we really believe his faithfulness? The answer is every single day. Every single day living in this fallen world, God gives us opportunity after opportunity to trust that he will be faithful and true to his promises, to trust and believe that he will never leave or forsake us, to trust and believe that he will never let us slip from his hand. Every day God gives us an opportunity like he gave Abraham. And he says to us, like he said to him, will you listen to my word and will you obey? When life is easy or when life is hard, when I'm confused and when I do not understand, will I believe that God is faithful? Will I trust him? My heart was stirred being there, knowing that God thousands of years ago demonstrated such incredible faithfulness and the people of God have always demonstrated such deep and abiding trust in him. I pray and trust that our hearts would do the same. I was reminded, secondly, that our God is supreme. We are called to worship him. Take your Bible and flip forward to 1 Kings chapter 18. First Kings chapter 18 tells the historical account of the prophet of Elijah confronting King Ahab, a wicked king who had turned his back on the Lord God Almighty. In fact, Israel was in a really bad place with the Lord. We see this pattern throughout Scripture that the people of God will trust God for a time, and then eventually they'll turn their back and turn toward other gods. They'll reject God. They'll rebel against Him. Israel is in one of those seasons of rebellion right now when God has actually brought upon the land a drought. He's refused to let it rain for three years. The people are, being, are becoming desperate. Water, especially in the ancient world, but water for us today is the same. Water is life. God brings about this conflict between Elijah and King Ahab, and more importantly, he brings about this conflict between the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. In chapter 18, Verse 17 through 21 remind us of the sinful human nature, but more importantly, it reminds us of this cosmic battle that rages all around us, the battle between God and the demonic. Verse 17 says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. Sounds like two kids on the playground and your father's house because you have abandoned, listen, here it is, you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. 
And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. It's a challenge. It's a duel between the gods. Do you see what's unfolding here? In the ancient Near East, Baal was considered not only a god, but a god of supreme rank. If you read through the Old Testament, you see that time and time again, Baal was the main object of Israel's idolatry. If they're going to turn away from Yahweh God, the one they're turning to most often is Baal. He's constantly set up in the scriptures as against or compared to Yahweh, the pagan gods believed that he rivaled the God of Israel, and in many ways he was superior to the God of Israel. Baal was the supreme God, and Asherah was his spouse. Was able to go to a site called Tel Dan, where the son of Solomon, one of the sons, Jeroboam, had built a temple to Baal. And you walked up and they've excavated this, this whole city, this old uh, ruins, it's fascinating, these huge walls, an old temple. And what's so staggering is this, at the very front, before you walk in the main gate, there is, they've uncovered this altar to Baal. And there's a large stone that's standing upright representing Baal. And lying down before him is supposed to be Asherah, his spouse. This is the son of Solomon who set this up. And then you march through the city and you get up to the top of the hill. They they always built the temples on the top. And what they did was they constructed a temple. And here's what they have determined. The exact specifications of this temple and the Holy of Holies mimics the temple of God down to the last speck. The dimensions of the Holy of Holy, you see what's happening here? The the king of Israel is deceiving the people of God. He's trying to compare Baal and suggest that Baal is somehow equal to or greater than the God of Israel. This is the constant battle that's being waged in, in the nation of Israel. And God is constantly coming to his people and saying, who are you going to serve? Choose this day whom you will serve. Who is the God who is supreme? Who is the one that you should worship? We know who the God is that we should worship. But what you need to see as this story unfolds is that there is a battle for glory, there is a battle for supremacy, there is a battle for worship taking place. I stood at the traditional site of this showdown on the top of Mount Carmel, and it is true, they're not sure exactly where this unfolded, but we were right on the very top of the mountain. It's more than likely that's, that's pretty close to where it happened. High above all the other mountains, looking over the valleys, thinking about what took place thousands of years before when God proved to his people that he was the only God worthy of worship, that he was the supreme God. Look how this account unfolds in dramatic fashion. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. 
And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Let's see who God truly is. Let's, let's call upon our gods and the one God who alone comes down and consumes this offering by fire. He's the true God. As I reflect on this, listen, I think we have a tendency to worship and follow lesser gods. I was struck by this. You know, we, we oftentimes look at the nation of Israel and think, how, how could they? How could they keep turning back to these false gods after everything the Lord has done for them? After all they've seen, how could they do this? But if that's the way you're reading the Old Testament, you're missing what God wants to teach you. You see, you and I are the exact same. You and I have the exact same tendencies. We love to fashion for ourselves lesser gods. We love to bow the knee to lesser gods. The history of Israel and of all of humanity reminds us that we seek from idols what only God can offer. And we give to idols what only God deserves. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. I want you just, as before we, we let the rest of the story unfold, I want you to think about the idols in your heart right now, and I want to give you the chance, like, like God was giving the people of Israel a chance to compare your idol with God. Compare, compare that thing that you love and that you worship above all with the God of the universe. What is it right now that you believe can do for you what God cannot? What is it right now in your life that you believe can give you what God cannot? What is it right now that you believe will give you peace? What is it in your life right now that you believe will give you rest, joy, meaning, purpose, value, hope, security, life? Is it the God of retirement? The God of comfort? Maybe it's the God of career or the God of family or marriage. Maybe it's the God of money and possessions. Maybe it's the God of position or success or entertainment or pleasure. You know when our idols' inadequacies are exposed? It's always in times of distress and drought. It's always in times of desperation and of need. And God draws this to the surface in verse 26. Look at what he does. And they took the bowl that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah, I love this, Elijah mocks them. He mocks them. Listen to what he says. Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Maybe he needs to go check the porta potty in the back. He's probably out there. That's what he's telling them. Like, where's your God? He's, he's, too, he, he's busy taking care of business. Or he's on a journey. Maybe he's left somewhere. You've got to wait for him to come back. Or perhaps he's just sleeping and needs to be awakened. 
You see what he's doing? He's deriding their gods. He is treating their God for what it is, a God fashioned in their own image. Do you see that? It's a God who's just like them, who has the same weaknesses and inadequacies. A God who needs sleep, a God who needs to go to the bathroom, a God who goes on long journeys, a God who needs to be waken up. And his point is this, that that's your God? That's a pathetic God. What can that God do for you? You've relied on the wrong God. You know, the more we call upon our false gods, the more foolish we look and the more worthless they become. Can you see them? Can you see them from morning till noon dancing around, limping around their altar? They begin to cry out and cut themselves. They're pleading with their God to show up how foolish they look and how weak their God is. I love how this story turns around. Look at verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, and all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bowl in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. By the way, that is a staggering thought. In the middle of a famine, he gets four massive jugs of water to simply pour out. There's meaning there, by the way. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. So they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the faithful God that we have already seen, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. One short prayer. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, look at this, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Worshiping false gods leads only to death. But when we see God as supreme in every regard, Know this, church, listen, we find life. When we see him as supreme above every other false god, we see and find in him life. Our hearts are renewed with strength. We find our lives filled with hope. We find our troubles met with peace. 
Church, can I encourage you this morning, see your idols, the things that you have leaned into, the things that you have chose to worship, see them as worthless substitutes that can't hold a candle to the true God. See them as nothing but a cheap knockoff. Tear down the altars. This was the language that God used constantly with his people. Go into the high places, tear down the altars, and set God back up where he belongs on his throne. Put God back on the high places of your heart. I love that in God's kindness and mercy, he shows us that he is supreme and he calls us to worship him. He calls us to stand in awe of our God. There's a great opportunity here. Listen, listen, I love this, that there's an opportunity here for the people who have been wrestling with rebellion against God to turn back. Can you see God's kindness in that for you this morning? That no matter what you've been worshiping, God's desire for you is to take you and to turn you back towards him. That's his whole purpose. He wants you to see that what you can have in him is so much greater than what you can have anywhere else. Be like the people here, fall down before him. This is our God, church. He is faithful, so we trust Him. He is supreme, so we worship Him. Thirdly, our God is gracious, so we follow Him. It's powerful to think about the way God brought Israel into existence. It's powerful to think about the promise that He made to Abraham. What is truly powerful is to be in the place where the fruition of that promise came to pass, to walk the place where Jesus walked. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. We stayed in a retreat center um, on the outskirts of Tiberias, high in the hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee. For three days we traveled around the Sea of Galilee. It's not very big. We traveled around to the surrounding towns where Jesus spent the vast majority of his life and where Jesus did the vast majority of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, we get a sense of that when Jesus begins his ministry. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says that now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted in various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. We get a taste here of the ministry of Jesus, really in summary form by Matthew. But I I was struck as, as I got to look out over Galilee, as I got to visit the places that Jesus would have spent so much time, I was struck by the graciousness of Jesus Christ. Listen, the graciousness of God, that he would come into this sin sick world, that he would live amongst his people who rebelled against him, and that he would so compassionately and mercifully heal them. It is a startling reality to be in places that you know Jesus Christ did massive amounts of miracles. You remember what John says at the end of John? That the things that Jesus said and did, they could not all be recorded in all the books of a library. Like, it's just amazing to think how much Jesus did here in this place over the course of three years. The graciousness of Jesus was seen here by human eyes in powerful, powerful ways. The authority of Jesus Christ was displayed here like none other. He called his disciples in this place to leave everything, to leave their careers and their families and to lay it all down and come and follow him. He preached the truth of the kingdom of God. He offered forgiveness of sins. He healed the sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the mute, and the demon possessed. He he stood on the hills and he fed the 5,000. He preached the Sermon on the Mount. We took a boat out onto the Sea of Galilee. And all I can think about was that time when Jesus' disciples were pushed out by Jesus off the shores to go across the Sea of Galilee. And in the middle of the night, things took a turn for the worse. The winds began to howl. The waves began to crash against the boat. It was dark. It was pitch black. And they see Jesus walking across the water thinking it's a ghost. The same sea that Jesus calls Peter out of the boat and he walks towards him on the water and begins to sink as he takes his eyes off Jesus and puts them back on the waves that are crashing around him and Jesus reaches down and he lifts him up. He says, oh, you of little faith. I couldn't help but think what it would have been like to hear Jesus rebuke the storm to know that all of creation listens to the voice of our Savior. Jesus walked on those very waters. You know, I woke up every morning bright and early, and this is what I got to see. I get to watch the sunrise over the Sea of Galilee. And as I've, I've seen a lot of sunrises, but I'll tell you, I've never seen anything that was so powerful in my life. And every time I woke up in the morning, I sat on top of the roof of our retreat center. I sat there with my Bible open and, of course, with a hot cup of coffee. And, you know, God just flooded my heart and mind with this thought. His mercies are new every morning. God is a merciful, gracious God. 
But God is a God of such compassion, of such love. And these are the places that he poured out his love and compassion in such profound, invisible ways. He had graciously come into that place at a point in history to offer forgiveness and to offer life, to offer the hope of heaven. But as you think about that, just consider this. God graciously came into the sin world for you and for me. And as he showed mercy and compassion then, he is still calling right now, this very day, maybe even in this very place, this very morning, he is still calling the lost, he is still calling the broken, he is still calling the sick, and he is calling them to come to him and be healed. Amen? Count the cost, Jesus says. Pick up your cross, he declares. Deny yourself, he proclaims. Follow me, he invites. This is why Jesus came. And I was reminded of the great privilege. Listen, this just struck me so hard. I need to be reminded of this so often, so I'm trusting that God wants to remind you of this as well. I was reminded of the sweet privilege it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is a privilege. It is the greatest privilege in all of the universe to be known by God, to be loved by God, and to be brought into a saving relationship through Jesus Christ, and to be called a follower of Christ. Listen, what is a derisive term in our culture, what is often mocked and scowled at in our culture, is the thing we hold so dear to our hearts, isn't it? To be known as a follower of Christ is not condemnation, it is salvation. It is a privilege, it is a privilege, let me say, it is a privilege to be called a follower of Jesus Christ, and I pray, listen, that God just stirs our hearts so that we fear not to tell people that we are followers of Jesus Christ, but we stand with boldness and conviction and joy in our hearts that we are called followers of Jesus Christ. It is no chore to be a follower of Christ. It is no burden to be a follower of Christ. It is no duty to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, there is no greater blessing than to know, love, and follow Jesus. With every rising sun, with every passing day, with every breath we take, may it be our supreme joy to follow Jesus. This is our God. He has so graciously come for us, and it is our privilege to follow Him. But you know, this perhaps is what struck me most as I walked where Jesus walked. Our God is coming. We need to proclaim him. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Perhaps the most dramatic memory. I have from the trip, there's many, and I'm still processing everything that I got to experience, but as I mentioned at the beginning, driving up this long road into Jerusalem. The city is larger than it once was. It's sprawling across the hills and the valleys, but as you wind your way up, Jerusalem is always up. Like I said, you see it there. You see the Temple Mount built on top of Mount Moriah the very place where Abraham took his son Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord, the very place where God spared his son, the place where the Lord appeared to David, where Solomon, David's son, would build the temple. There are massive walls surrounding the city. It truly is a sight to behold. It's, it's amazing. Jesus would have come here three times a year, at least for the three 
Jewish feasts and festivals. He would come here. The Word of God tells us, though, to die. And in Luke chapter 9, I want to remind you of verse 51 through 53. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. For some reason, I woke up every single morning while it was still dark. We stayed five days in Jerusalem, stayed on the 11th floor of a hotel. Every morning, the Lord woke me up at around 4.30, and I looked out the curtains of the window. I looked across the city that was dark and speckled with lights. And as I did, God impressed every single morning this verse onto my heart, Luke 13, 34. The words of Jesus as he looked upon the city, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. I couldn't help but think as I looked over the city how lost this city was. The, secular, the secularism, the, the hedonism of the city is staggering. 83% of Israelites or Jewish people claim to be non-religious. I couldn't help but think how Jesus looked at this city and he loved this city so desperately and his heart broke over this city. He wept over this city. He longed to see these people come out of their rejection and their rebellion and to embrace him for who he truly was, their Messiah and their Lord. And then as I reflected on these words for Jerusalem, they were, listen, it reminded me that this is the heart of God for humanity. God looks at humanity and he weeps over the brokenness of humanity. He longs for people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It was in Jerusalem that Jesus would celebrate the Passover feast with his disciples for the very last time. They would gather together in that upper room. They would celebrate the Passover feast, remembering and reflecting upon and thanking God for their great deliverance out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, how God had rescued them and saved them. And he would sit around that table and he would institute a new and better celebration meal. He would take the bread and the wine and he would teach them about the significance of his death that was just around the corner. He would leave that room and he would walk out the east gates of the city, walking down the gentle slopes of the Kidron Valley. He would cross and right across from the city wall, a stone's throw away, is the Mount of Olives that overlooks the Temple Mount. He would walk up the Mount of Olives and go into the Garden of Gethsemane, an olive garden where Jesus loved to spend time and pray. He would leave his disciples while he prayed. And I, I got to go into the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's just an incredible experience. We got to spend an hour with our Bibles open and praying before the Lord and, pray, and, and, and reading the, the, the scriptures, especially the scriptures of, of Jesus being in that garden. I, I couldn't help but think this was the ground. This is the ground where Jesus knelt and he wept over the people that he loved and he sweated great drops of blood in this place. 
agonizing over the horrific sacrifice that he would have to make, agonizing, yes, that he would go to the cross and that he would, he would die a horrifically painful death, but that he would suffer for the sins of humanity, for our sins. He would go to that place. It was there that he pled with God, God, if there's any way that you can take this cup away, God, any other way that we could do this, Lord, that doesn't involve me experiencing this awful separation from you, Three times he prayed it, and three times the answer of God was the same. And Jesus' response is so powerful, isn't it? Not my will be done, but yours. I, I, was, so, I, I was so moved sitting there surrounded by trees that are thousands of years old. The trees there would have witnessed, some of them would have witnessed the prayers of Jesus. thinking about Jesus' faithfulness in that garden, thinking about Judas coming and betraying him there. We went to the site of the crucifixion. I stood and looked at the rock of the skull, Golgotha. I thought about his death, how humiliating it was, how painful it was, how everything went dark. And literally just a stone's throw away from the rock where he was crucified is the garden tomb. To walk into the tomb where Jesus laid his body for three days. But to know on that third day when they came to the tomb, he was not there. He was risen and he was alive. Remembering that this is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to die. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. We sat in the garden area outside of the tomb. Me and the group of pastors I was with, and we, we took communion together. We shared about what impacted us most on the trip, and I can honestly tell you, I, I, I expected that I was going to go to Israel, and I knew that I was going to want to draw closer to the Lord. I knew that it was going to impact me in that way, but what I did not expect was that it was going to make me long for the return of Jesus Christ even more. Just this overwhelming sense that Jesus is coming soon. Acts chapter 1, verse 11 on the screen. The disciples had seen Jesus on the Mount of Olives ascend into heaven. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This Jesus who went into heaven supernaturally is one day supernaturally going to come back and return. I stood on the Mount of Olives, it's a staggering thought, listen, I stood on the Mount of Olives and envisioned what it would be like to see the Son of God and the Son of Man, the judge of the world, returning to come and lay claim to his creation. I thought of Zechariah 14. It's on the screen, but just listen, just listen to these words. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. 
that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by very wide valleys, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other shall half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but in evening time there shall be light. And on that day living waters shall flow from Jerusalem." half of them to the eastern sea and half of them the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And I love this, listen. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Our God is coming. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. And listen, whether short or long, I'll tell you this, I was convicted. I want to spend the rest of my days proclaiming him. You know, when we come to the Lord's table as a church family, we need to be reminded that this is our God. He is faithful he is supreme. He is gracious. And we need to be reminded, listen, this, is, this meal reminds us that our God is coming again. We need to be reminded to trust Him. We need to be reminded to worship Him. We need to be reminded to follow Him. And we need to be reminded to proclaim Him. As you're preparing your hearts, I want to encourage you with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six about celebrating the Lord's Supper. Listen, he said this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is meant to do a lot of things for us Christians, but don't miss this. It is meant to remind us that our God, our Savior Jesus Christ is returning. And it is our joy and it is our privilege to proclaim him until that day comes.